Thank you, Cheryl. My name is Jackie. I'm an alcoholic and a grateful member of Al-Anon. Whenever anybody would say they were grateful for anything that had to do with this disease, I would go, you know? But today I can stand up here and say that I am grateful. I'm grateful to be in Minneapolis and sober. I've, I was in Minneapolis sober once before, uh, but I've been in Minneapolis many times, and I, not one of those days did I not drink. And so to be here, to be able to walk the streets as a free woman and not drink is a huge privilege, but that's part of my story. I, lived in, I live in California, so Minneapolis is sort of uh, geographic. Anyway, I'm here to tell you, if you're a newcomer, that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works. It worked for me. If it can work for me, I was a falling down drunk. And if it can work for me, it can work for you too. And no matter how complicated and how unique and how isolated you are, it'll work. You don't have to believe me. You don't even have to believe um, half the stuff that people tell you. But if you follow the suggestions, get a sponsor and work the steps, you too can uh, come to Minneapolis and not drink. And that's a huge privilege for this drunk, because I spent a lot of years being, being a stumbling, falling down drunk. I came to you late in my life, earlier than now, fortunately. <laughs> um, but what I want to tell you is that if this is your first IDAA, I want to tell you about my first IDAA. Um, we were in Pittsburgh. It's not called Pittsburgh for no reason. Anyway, um, I, was born, I was born in Pennsylvania, so I can say that with some confidence. Anyway, I arrived, um, and you all knew each other. And you liked each other. And you didn't know me, but you were going to torture me by sending me to some banquet and making me stand in a long line and say something of which I had no desire. Now, I'd like to thank Steve Silver for asking me to talk and moving me out of my comfort zone because this is definitely not my comfort zone. So walking up in that line at the newcomer's banquet was one of the scariest things I'd done in my life. Um, and there's a golf tournament because golf is part of my story too. And I was out on the golf course at, at the first IDAA and I'm playing golf with a um, very nice gentleman. He actually ran some sort of treatment program for doctors. Well, I was three years sober at the time and um, I had neatly compartmentalized my medicine as having nothing to do with my alcoholism. After all, I never went to work drunk. The fact that I had been on probation at my hospital for uh, throwing surgical instruments and stabbing somebody was just kind of, you know, one of those things that ever, it's the privilege and right of every surgeon, you know? Anyway, I had neatly compartmentalized my medicine away from my alcohol recovery. And I, I had gone to the meetings, and here we are playing golf. And I realized that my going out to get a, a Coca-Cola 
to drink, and walking through the liquor, liquor store was probably not a sign that I was really on the way to recovery. And I was just hurting really, really bad. I was really in pain. And um, I'm playing golf with this guy, and we're talking about my kids and his kids, and everything is just fine, just fine. And inside, I'm screaming, can't you see I'm dying? Can't you see that I'm just in agony? Why don't you see that? You run a program, you know? And I thought that just getting sober was going to be enough to make me live happily ever after. Well, I had run my program of recovery exactly the same way I'd run my life, on fear. I was afraid I was going to fail. I knew I tried everything that I knew of to try to stay, to, to not drink. And I had found Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I would tell you, I found Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not really true. But I had come to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was what I thought was my last chance. And I had found the sponsor, worked the steps, done everything that was suggested. I had gone to 270 meetings in 90 days. I had listed my 27 character defects. And I still was not happy, joyous, and free. And the, the promises were not coming true for me. Um, and here I am with this guy who runs a treatment program. Doesn't he know? Why can't he see? You know, um, aren't we born with x-ray vision so that we can see inside of other people? Well, I got through the round of golf, and I didn't say, can't you see that I am really hurting? But before I left, I made myself a promise. I said, if it gets any worse, and then what, what worse was probably mean was picking up another drink, if it gets any worse, I'm getting this guy's card, and I know I can go to treatment. So that's the promise I made myself. And I walked away from my first IDAA with hope because I knew being a physician made me uh, let's see, that there were special treatment programs for physicians that could deal with my special issues. But in my heart, I knew that I was going to have to integrate my program of recovery into my practice of medicine. And Lord, I didn't know how complicated it was going to get. Um, so I was born in Pennsylvania, and a pretend of uh, what was to come was I was born in an elevator between the first and second floors going on my way to labor and delivery. So I ended up as an OBGYN, naturally. Uh, my family was a typical 40s and 50s family. Um, you know, I was smart. I went to college. I went to medical school. I drank more than other people, but I only see that in retrospect. Uh, but this goal of becoming a physician uh, was really, really strong. My mother said, you're so unlovable, no one will ever marry you. And the first guy that I got a chance to marry, I married. So I graduated from medical school, and I got married at the same time. And we came to, Cal came to California, and I had a kid, and I had a kid here, and I had a kid there. And pretty soon we had five. 
Um, between the two of us, he finished his military obligation, and I finished my residency, he finished his residency, and we landed in Nevada, California. And life was supposed to begin. Well, that, for me, meant being an adult. That meant that now I could drink. And I began to drink a little bit more than my fellows. Now, when I look back on it, I remember walking into a psychiatrist's office in 1978 and saying to him, you know, I'm having trouble managing a full-time practice where I'm the only OBGYN in town. I have five children under the age of 10. Um, my husband is a full-time orthopedic surgeon. And I just am having a little trouble managing this, and I'm just a little bit worried that during these two weeks that I'm going to have to take call continuously, that I might drink a little bit too much and not be available. So he ordered some antabuse. Now, he went down to the pharmacy and picked it up for me. Hmm. Maybe he had some codependency issues. But um, so I already had a problem in 1978 before I even even had a clue myself. Life, time goes by, practice goes on, stuff happens. Um, I, one of my solutions was to change practices to go, it was solo practice that was bothering me. So I joined a multi-specialty clinic and moved um, my practice into a, into a group. They promptly went bankrupt. And then the solution was, oh, this marriage isn't working. So I left my husband and my last two children who were still at home. And that is still a very painful part of my life. Uh, but it seemed like a solution at the time. Ah, now Minneapolis comes in. Um, six months later, I met a man on the golf course in California who lived here in the Twin Cities. We began a relationship that was intense. Now, he had been to treatment a couple times at Hazleton, uh, but it was all a mistake, of course. The interventions, that was just his kids picking on him. And that during, during the next three years, I would learn to drink daily. Meanwhile, the multi-specialty clinic goes bankrupt, uh, but it gives me a lot more time to play here in Minneapolis, in up north. Of course, everybody has a cabin up north. So we, uh, we, I had a wonderful time, and for the first time in my life, I experienced what it was to be loved and to love. Um, and we went to Hawaii, where we played golf. And he also cheered my love for golf. And then one November morning, when we were doing what couples in love do, he went, <sighs> and I called 911 and pulled him off the bed and started to do CPR. And, and it felt like forever until the paramedics came and, then I could hear them on the steps upstairs, and I thought, do I put my clothes on, or do I just let them in? So I let them in, and um, they took him off, and of course, um, he didn't survive. 
And that was my clue to solve the problem of my pain, and I solved it with a bottle of vodka, multiple bottles of vodka. Meanwhile, I'm back in solo practice. I'm only doing gynecology. Obviously, at this point, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do any obstetrics because I'm drinking every night. I'm going to the bar. I'm going home with people that I really don't know very well. And I'm doing things that really... um, Today, it's hard for me to stand up here and tell you that I really did those things. But it's part of the disease, and I had it bad, really bad. And fortunately, every good alcoholic has to have a good codependent, and I had one working for me. And one morning, I I wasn't able to see patients. I was supposed to start seeing patients at 1 o'clock, and instead of my usual um, stopping drinking at midnight, blah, 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 I drank right until the morning, and I had to cancel my afternoon office. And uh, when I told her that she was going to have to cancel the office, she said, uh, well, why is that? And I said, I've been drinking. And she said, well, I'm making an appointment with you to see Dr. So-and-so. And, you know, at this point, I was, uh, I was not able to think for myself. And so I said, sure. And so I went into um, my next door professional neighbor's office, who was a GP, and sat on his examining table. And he came in and he said, why are you here? And I said, I didn't come to work yesterday because I've been drinking. And he said to me, did you know I was an alcoholic? And I had no clue. So he sat there and he told me his story. And he said, how would you like to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with me? And I thought, hell, I've tried everything else. You know, I'm willing to do anything. And I trusted this man. And he'd been sober for nine months, and that's all. And, you know, he saved my life. Now, if I were to tell you this story five years ago, I would have said uh, I was willing to become sober when I had to give up my, I was afraid I was going to lose my white coat because it was the only thing left that I had of value. Today, I tell you, that some power greater than me put that guy in my life at a time when I was willing and then proceeded to put a whole bunch of other people in my life. Now, I brought this up here with me. Six months previously, I had stumbled out of the bar and I just knew I was, I was ruining my life. And I, and I said, God, I need an angel. So I went into the jewelry store next door and I asked them, do you have any angels? You know, I'm thinking those little pins nurses wear all the time and everything like that. They had no angels. They had this goddess. And I put it on and I started wearing it around my head. And six months later, this man dropped into my life. Now, he doesn't come to IDAA. I don't know whether he's sober today, but on that day, he was that angel that I needed in my life. And 
So he takes me to a meeting, and the room was 25 times bigger than this room, it seemed like. I've been back there. It's about as big as, you know, a quarter of this room. And, of course, I sat in the very back. And when they got to the part, is there anyone here at their first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous? And there were people raising their hand. And you know what? I just got caught up in the spirit of things. And I raised my hand and I said, yes, my name's Jackie and I'm an alcoholic. And it came out of my mouth. And for, you know, this is why we get up, I get up and talk. Because when I hear it, then it means something to me. You know, when it rattles around in this empty space between my ears, it doesn't mean anything to me. But when I get up and say it, you know, it means I am an alcoholic. Okay? And there were patients in that room, you know, and I just... You know, they, they turned around and they looked at me and they said, welcome, we're glad you're here, we love you. You know, and, and it was the love that kept me coming back. So that was Wednesday to Thursday. Friday I go to a meeting and a patient, com- and, and a woman comes up to me who's about 25 years old and she says, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no. She said, well, I'm going to be your sponsor. (laughs) And she said, I want you to read chapter, the doctor's opinion, chapter one, and and meet me at my house on Tuesday at 7 o'clock. And so, you know, I'm afraid. I'm fearful. This is how I'm working my recovery. I figure if I don't do this, something bad's going to happen. So... I get I get the big book and I start I read this chapter and I show up at her house and she's got a dog she's never had any kids and you know I just I can't connect to this person she's younger than my kids are you know and I'm going but of course she had you know sobriety that I didn't have and she said well if this isn't working for you I want you to call me tomorrow within 24 hours and let me know the name of your new sponsor so, you know, this is the, this is the, uh, the hard-ass approach to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, th- you know, that was what I needed. I needed somebody to give me direct directions, not vague directions. It was show up, read this, whatever. So I went to a meeting the next morning. A woman, a woman said something. I said, well, uh, you know, I, I glommed onto her. I said, will you be my sponsor? She said, well, I have to check with my sponsor before I can tell you the answer to that. I said, can I call this woman and tell tell her that you're going to be my sponsor? Anyway, she became my sponsor. She had uh, had five years of sobriety, which I could not even conceive of. And she had relapsed and had been sober again for six months. So it was like, uh, you know, I threw her a lifeline. She threw me a lifeline. And she said, you know, the answer to all your problems, the way to live your life is right here in this book. And that's all you're going to need. When you have a question, you, the book will always be there. It doesn't change. And I read this stuff about thee and thou and all about the men and the men, the men, the men, you know. And, and I'm still going, <laughs> So she gave me some things to say, to do on step one. And I went off and I did step one. And I wrote them all down and talked to her about them, and then we came to step two. And I didn't have too much trouble with the, you know, came to believe 
I had a little trouble with the fact that I might be insane, but I came to believe. And when I got to step three, I had this dream. I had this dream. I'm playing golf, and it was on a golf course that I knew, Saddle, Saddle Creek. And I'm going down the fairway on this par three, and it was, you know, had a little decrease in elevation. And as I'm going down the hill, I'm going faster and faster, and all of a sudden I'm falling. And it's that damned old falling down the well dream. And I thought, oh, I suppose this is the time when I'm supposed to turn it over to God. And so I said, okay, God, you got it. You know, and in the dream, I land on my feet. I'm perfectly okay. And God says to me, do you think that if you trust in me, I'm ever going to let you fall? I'm going, I don't believe this stuff, you know. But anyway, it was enough to get me through that third step. Now, I was going to have an experience a little bit later on, a lot more quickly than I had hoped for. But within the year, I'm an OBGYN, uh, and I was only doing gynecology when I got sober, but the the way God worked was, uh, he said, um, you know, you're not doing enough. You need to be busier. So the hospital came to me and said, would you cover OB? We'll pay your OB malpractice for, for another year. You know, because that's a big chunk. And the first year that you're doing OB, you don't get any income anyway. So I'm back in the OB business. And about the first patient that I had to deliver after, when, during this year was a woman who came on a train from Maine to California at 38 weeks gestation. So she goes, she comes in in labor and I go in to take care of her. And she pushes and she pushes and she pushes and she pushes and she can't get the baby out. So we take her in to do a C-section and she bleeds and she bleeds and she bleeds and, you know, and when we, we close her up and we can't get it stopped and we open her again and, you know, I've got vascular surgeons and GYN oncologists there and, and two anesthesiologists and we've pumped X number of blood into her and I go out, I'm going to go out and talk to her husband while they're doing whatever they're doing and, um, and it came to me, I'm standing there in the OR, you know, almost literally and, and up to my ankles in blood. And I, I look and I think, God, I know you're really in charge here. But if I could put in a word, would you please let her live? You know, I knew at that moment that I was not the one who was going to heal her, that it was totally in his hands and not in my hands. So I, it, she did live. And then I learned that, um, you know, she, she survived. She went home, and I thought, well, you know, this is California. I'm going to be sued, right? So they come in for their post-op check, and they, they come in, and they're in gratitude. Thank you. Thank you for saving my wife's life. Thank you for our beautiful baby. Uh, I know had we stayed in Maine, she wouldn't have lived, you know, and I am just racked with this guilt that I haven't done something perfectly. And... You know, I'm still feeling very uncomfortable about what has happened. And then they come back for their six-week checkup, 
And she comes in and she says, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. My sisters came and helped me with a baby and now I've recovered pretty well. And my sisters have told me that if I want to have another baby, they'll be willing to be surrogate mothers for me and I can have another child. And I went, oh, what a gift of love. Maybe this isn't about me. Imagine that. As something that happens that's not about an alcoholic. Can you imagine that? So, back to my sponsor. She says I have to do a four-step. Well, being the unrecovered perfectionist that I am, first of all, I'm not going to get everything down. And you know that my life has been really complicated and important. And so I, she, so she gives me a deadline. You know, I'm gonna, you gotta have it done by X amount of time. It's kind of like being in school. So I did a four step. It was fairly superficial. My parents didn't even appear on my four step. Hmm. Anyway, I, I shared my fifth step with her. Uh, I am at, I did come up with 27 character defects, categorized them. And, uh, of course, tried to get rid of them all by myself. Turning it over still wasn't much part of my, um, of my program. Uh, made a list of the persons I had harmed. I have feeling extreme guilt about my children that I had abandoned when I left my husband. And these two younger children were, at this point, um, in college. And so, Actually, my son had graduated from college. He'd gone to the University of Arizona. So I, I flew to Tucson. No, I flew to, he was working in Phoenix at this time. I flew to Phoenix with the express idea that I was going to make amends to him. And I touched down and he picked me up at the airport and he said, uh, oh, I gotta show you the, um, the new baseball stadium. We used to call it the Bob, but it's something else now. Anyway, you know, he's a, he's a civil engineer, a structural engineer, and he just, you know, he loves the way things are built and da 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 da. And we go there. He said, we'll have dinner over there. So we go in to this restaurant, and there's no baseball game on. They're having a, a promise keepers meeting. Oh, yeah, God, I see. So he says to me, we're, eat, we're eating, and he says to me, Oh, you know, do you, do you think those people really believe in God? And I said, I think they probably really do. And it was just a perfect segue right into making amends to him and telling him how, how much I loved him and how painful it was that I didn't think of him when I left and, and that I knew that my alcoholism was part of it. And I, you know, I had prepared this beautiful speech and he said to me, and we're both crying, he said, well, I know that that's all nice and everything, but why is it that dad didn't realize I was a good enough golfer to play golf in college? <laughs> So um, we make amends not for the responses that we're going to get. <laughs> but I learned that it was about forgiveness for me. Um, when I was about four and a half years sober, I 
was in my usual morning meeting, which was uh, one day at a time, and I realized that if I didn't make amends to my ex-husband, I probably wasn't going to see five years of sobriety. So I decided to make that a goal. So I started working on why it was so hard for me to make amends, because I knew I had a, a, my alcoholism and my, myself had a big role in the, in the breakup of our marriage, although I had, was still calling him the asshole. So I realized that our relationship had been abusive and that I was afraid to go and face him. I talked it over with my sponsor. She said, you don't have to do that. She said, just write him a letter, tell him what it is, and, and be done with it. Of course, the, in the process, I began to really read a daily meditation book for women who had been in abusive relationships, and another part of me healed. Ah. So, I'm lost. <laughs> I knew this would happen. When, when my sponsor handed me this big book, she said, I want you to turn to those pages, which I can never remember, I think it's 82, 3, where it says, on, a, on an arising. And she said, I want you to do those things every day. So most people would say you can't do step 11 until you've done all the other steps. But for me, it was very important that I develop a spiritual practice. This was part of taking the suggestions and doing the things, even though I didn't believe in that it would work. So, you know, I had, um, I had exercise. I dropped out of exercise. I had belonged to, I had collected stamps. I got bored with collecting stamps. You know, I was afraid that the same thing would happen to me with Alcoholics Anonymous. But as long as I keep up my routine of prayer and meditation, I find that I don't get bored. I didn't know anything about meditation, so I did what every good alcoholic does. I took a class. I went to college and learned how to meditate. And what did I learn? The same thing I learned here. If you do it, it works. You know, and so I, I found that I just have to do it every single day. It doesn't matter how I do it. It's just that I have to do it. So I came back to IDAA and I found that the maleness of it wouldn't, didn't bother me anymore. And I found that the guy that took 460 Percodan a day, you know, didn't bother me anymore. And the, and the, Language in the big book stopped bothering me because I felt better inside. I, when I left that first IDA meeting, I went back to my home group and I was able to admit that I had some codependency issues, the fact that I was living with an active alcoholic and about to move into a 38-foot trailer with him might have been a little bit of a clue. Anyway, I went back and I started going to Al-Anon and I worked the steps over again with an Al-Anon sponsor. 
And I began to accept the love that those women and men had for me in a way that I had never been able to do in AA alone. So I had to work both programs in order to get better, whatever better is. What better for me was, was accepting my fear as it is. And I kind of read a lot of stuff by Jablonski, and he says, you know, there are only two emotions, fear and love, and you have a choice which one you're going to live in. So I said, well, I'm going to try to live my life in love and stop living in fear. So I've tried to do that, and the way that's worked for me is to see everything as gratitude. And, you know, thank you for the things you've given me. Thank you for the things you've taken away. And thank you for the things you've never given me. It's been hard. This year has been not easy. Um, my One of my daughters got married. My sister died, who had multiple sclerosis, who I was very close to. And uh, my sponsor has developed breast cancer. And this has been a difficult journey. But I've learned that God has a plan. I don't have a plan. I, my best plan got me here, you know? So I just have really embraced the idea that everything's okay in God's world, and all I need to do is let go and let him do it. Thank you.